Well, it's uh, good to be back with you again. Um, I'm glad that you invited me to come out, and I'm preaching again uh, on the second sermon of a series that I began in the book of Habakkuk. Um, The series has two more sermons in it, so if you want to hear the end, uh, you should convince Pastor Mark to take two more weeks vacation sometime soon. Yeah, right. I'm sure he might appreciate that as well. Um, As our brother mentioned, uh, this is God's reply to Habakkuk's cry. Uh, Last time I was here, I preached just Habakkuk's cry. Uh, So we hear God's response to it uh, this morning and can give consideration to that. Um, It's actually God's first reply to Habakkuk's first cry because Habakkuk thinks about what he hears in our passage this morning and responds again, and God replies again, and then Habakkuk ends it, the book, the small book in a, in a psalm of rejoicing and praise uh, in a difficult situation he finds himself in. Uh, I would like to begin in verse 1 of Habakkuk, chapter 1, uh, just to remind ourselves of where we are in this, this book, beginning in verse 1 of Habakkuk. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, How long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. This is the Lord's replying. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Let's ask the the blessing of the Lord upon our the preaching of his word this morning. Father God, we do come before you this morning, this Lord's Day, a day that you have set aside for the benefit of your people to hear from and to feed upon the truth contained in your word given to us uh, for your glory and our good. We pray, Father, that today uh, your Holy Spirit would be present among us and active uh, in the preaching and hearing of your word, that this might truly be uh, a sermon and not just a man speaking Uh, Father, help us to understand your word aright, and please, we ask you to apply it to our hearts. We ask these things in the name of our Lord, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever prayed out to God? 
and wished that he would respond to you verbally uh, in a way that you could hear and understand in a more conversational way. I think we all have felt that way at certain times in our lives. In this particular passage, the prophet Habakkuk is recording an example of when God did that with him. But after hearing God's reply to his initial complaint, Habakkuk likely wished that God had not spoken to him because he did not hear good news. He did not hear something encouraging. He did not hear something that made him joyful. The words which God spoke to him were indeed most terrible. In the first four verses uh, of this chapter, uh, Habakkuk had been uh, raising his complaint against God, saying, God, I look around the nation of Judah and I see violence, I see strife, I see that, that justice never takes place because the wicked control the seats of power and authority and it was, we're getting more and more wicked, more and more corrupt, and it seems like you're not doing anything about it. As Habakkuk watched his nation turn its back on Jehovah and become more of a law unto itself, it grieved his soul, and he poured out his heart to the Lord, asking God to intervene. But God had not answered his prophet, and he even complained about that. How long will I cry out and you will not here. It seems that he was thinking, God, either do something about this situation or stop making me see it so clearly everywhere I go. I can't take this anymore. And in verses 5 through 11, we read God's reply to the prophet concerning the burden which the Lord had caused his prophet to see and to bear. And by the time he began to absorb something, I believe, of the implications of what God's reply really meant, he realized that he had walked into something of immense and intense significance. And this this burden, which he had brought before the Lord in prayer, rather than being lightened and lifted off of him after hearing from the Lord, it became frighteningly heavier. Rather than saying to the prophet, Thank you, Habakkuk, for bringing Judah's wickedness to my attention. And because of your faithful prayers, I will come and turn the hearts of my people back towards me. No. God replies essentially to his prophet saying, Yes, Habakkuk, I see their wickedness too. I am God after all. (laughs) And no, it is not true that I am doing nothing about it, as you suppose. Rather, I am doing something that you wouldn't believe if someone even told you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans in order to accomplish my purposes of judgment on Judah for her wickedness, and my judgment will indeed be swift and most, most terrible. What I am about to do, the Lord says, what I am about to do is something you would not believe even if someone told you. I did not open your eyes to the treachery committed by Judah simply so that you could stare at her sin and be grieved, he says. But I opened your eyes to their sin 
so that you could see my glory at work, so that you could see the hand of my justice at work. Stop navel-gazing at your nation alone. Lift up your eyes and see what I am doing amongst all the nations of the earth. I am sovereign over not just Judah, but every tribe and every tongue. And I'm going to tell you what I am about to do. Something unbelievable. Just like us, I believe the prophet had become preoccupied, if not obsessed, with his own particular situation in Judah. Not remembering that the Lord is sovereign over all the earth. Not just uh, where we live in our own little worlds that we are familiar with. God was looking at a far bigger picture. A far bigger picture. And working out his sovereign will in all of the known world at that time. And what is more, Habakkuk was looking at his present situation at one particular point in time. And God was looking down at all of the nations over a long period of time. And accomplishing many of his purposes at once through an orchestrated uh, turning of events by the direction of the hand of the Lord. To summarize what the Lord says in this passage to Habakkuk. Um, I've told a, a, a children's story of, of a kid who is going to an elementary school uh, and he and three, three of his friends are bullied by the other 20 kids in their class every single day. And they feel, they feel terrible about being bullied. They don't know what to do about it. And finally, one day, one of the kids starts to pray to God. He says, God, would you please help me uh, to not be bullied at school? They used to go to the teachers and, and say that to the teachers, the kids are bullying me. But the teacher was the mom of like three of those bullies. She didn't do anything about it. She was corrupt too. So he's praying to the Lord, God, help save me from these bullies. But he doesn't hear anything from God for a long time, right? The kid's name was Habakkuk, by the way. <laughs> Maybe that's why they picked on him. <laughs> but uh, finally one day the Lord answers him. And he comes down and he says, it's not that I'm not doing anything about these bullies, but you're only looking at your little schoolyard. Okay? I am doing something far grander than you can picture. Come with me and I'm going to show you. So God takes him over uh, to the other side of the schoolyard and there's this, this hot air balloon of the Lord. Right? He's God. He can make hot air balloons if he wants. So they get in the hot air balloon and he brings this kid way, way up into the sky. And then he tells the kid, after he's like way high in the air, that he could barely even see his little schoolyard. He says, I want you to look out on the horizon and you tell me what you see. And he looks and he squints and he says, it, it looks really dark. I see really dark clouds out there. And I see flashes of light all throughout it. But they were far too far away to hear the thunder yet. And the Lord said, that's right. I've seen the wickedness of the bullies on your schoolyard. I've seen the wickedness of all of the people in your town and in the larger area surrounding this, this, this schoolyard that you go to. And I've heard your prayer. And I've heard the prayers of others because of their sinfulness. But my own vengeance, my own justice is far worse than what you can imagine. In response to this sinfulness and this wickedness, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am stirring up the largest hurricane the world has ever seen. And a great tidal wave is going to come and sweep all those bullies off the playground. They're going to be dealt with and judged for their sin. So it's not that I'm not listening to your prayer. But I'm bringing judgment in response to it. 
So after hearing these words, this kid begins to realize or suddenly realizes that God takes sin way more seriously than he does. God takes sin far more seriously than we do. And when God returns the kid to his playground after this conversation they've had, this kid can no longer see the storm that's miles away, but he knows it's there. Right? He knows it's coming. And most, if not all of his entire city that he lives in, not just his playground, is going to suffer the wrath and vengeance of Lord Almighty. And suddenly, he's not nearly as concerned about these bullies anymore, is he? He is more terrified of the coming judgment of God and wondering questions about the sovereignty and goodness of God in the midst of this because he's likely going to be swept away by this tidal wave as well as the bullies, right? This is how Habakkuk felt when he heard the news that God had told him. When God took the prophet Habakkuk up into his hot air balloon, so to speak, it was not a hurricane he saw brewing on the expanded horizon, but rather it was an army that God himself was raising up to overthrow the rule of the Assyrian Empire, the most mighty empire uh, that that part of the world had seen come to date. And it had been in power, in very solid, comfortable power, for over a hundred years. And the army that God was raising up was the army of a people called the Chaldeans, who lived on the eastern fringes of the Assyrian Empire, hundreds of miles away from Judah. And when God told his prophet that phrase, you would not believe what I am doing, even if someone told you, was quite true. Because in Habakkuk's day, most people living in Judah had barely even heard of the Chaldeans. Well, they knew who the Chaldeans were uh, because the only other reference to in, in Scripture up to this point to who the Chaldeans were occurred some 3,000 years earlier, historically, when a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, that's where Ur was, he was called by God to leave that place. So the Chaldeans were not completely unfamiliar, but they were... Uh, very insignificant on the political stage of the world at this point in time. And not too long uh, after God spoke to Habakkuk, the Chaldeans indeed destroyed the Assyrian Empire, the largest empire that part of the world had seen. But only 20 years before they did this, the Chaldeans were nothing but a group of 20 or 30 small tribal villages who lived south of the ancient city of Babylon, which was a mighty Assyrian stronghold. They were not a nation. The Chaldees were not a nation. It's a group of independent tribes that lived in a in a region. Uh, that they were and they were situated somewhere around the Euphrates River. And not only were they just a small group of small tribal villages, but they had never gotten along with one another uh, historically, as far back as history records. They were constantly fighting with one another. They were certainly not the least threat to the mighty Assyrian Empire when God is speaking to his prophet. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans (laughs) to overthrow the Assyrian Empire and then they're going to execute my judgment on Judah. Okay, That would be like, like God coming and telling us, I am raising up Nicaragua to overthrow the United States of America. It's kind of hard to picture, right? That's what he's telling Habakkuk here. 
God raised up a man named uh, Nabopolassar, who was the first uh, king of the later known Babylonian Empire. They were the Chaldeans. He saw the Assyrian Empire had grown weak. He united all the tribes of the Chaldees together. He attacked Babylon. He made very wise political alliances with the Medes. He made plans to attack Nineveh, the capital of the city. And Nabopolassar also had another uh, card up his sleeve, which was one of the greatest generals in the history of the world, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, whom we've heard of. God gifted uh, both of these men, father and son, in tremendous ways to play certain roles, to unite a, a, a bunch of warring nobodies, to overthrow Assyria, to judge Assyria for her sin, but also to judge Judah. Assyria was the greatest superpower in the world, and suddenly, seemingly overnight, this small group of tribal misfits attacked Babylon, one of the greatest strongholds that they had next to Nineveh, and they utterly decimated it. No one expected that. No one would have believed it could even be possible, but it happened. The Assyrians, who were even after that defeat, they were still by far the strongest military in the world, They retreated back to Nineveh, which was a a more powerful stronghold than Babylon at that time, and they regrouped. And they said, the next time the Chaldeans dare to attack us, we will be ready, we won't be caught off guard, and we're going to make them pay. And just two years later, the Chaldeans attacked again, completely destroyed Nineveh. The Assyrians retreated again, this time to their last major stronghold at a city named Carchemish, Uh, And they made a a phone call to their old friend Pharaoh down in Egypt who controlled the second most powerful army in the world next to the Assyrians to please come and help them defeat these bold Chaldean misfits who dared upset the balance of power. So Pharaoh started making his way up to Carchemish, which was north of Israel. And remember, God is orchestrating all of these political events. Pharaoh starts making his way with his army up to Carchemish. To get there, where does he have to go through? He has to go through Judah, right? But you know what? Israel and Judah, I'm sorry, not Israel and Judah, Egypt and Judah, they were friends at this particular time. Okay? They had maintained peace treaties for a long time. He informed, Pharaoh informed Josiah that he was bringing his army through Judah in order to help the Assyrians stop these, these crazy barbarians from overthrowing the empire whom everyone feared. But for some inexplicable reason, King Josiah of Judah refused to allow the Egyptian army to go through. And he took his army to a place called Megiddo, and he would not let Pharaoh go through his land. So Pharaoh, angered and and feeling insulted, fought with King Josiah, destroyed Judah's little army with ease, killing King Josiah at Megiddo in the process. Pharaoh eventually made his way up to Carchemish, met up with his Assyrians, helped to defend the city of Carchemish, one of the greatest turning points in history, if you've ever studied ancient history, the Battle of Carchemish. And just as the Lord said, the uh, Chaldeans destroyed it. They defeated both the Assyrian and the Egyptian armies.
Effectively, while making his way back to Egypt, Pharaoh was feeling insulted. (laughs) He was angry at being defeated. He stopped by at Jerusalem on his way back to Egypt with the remainder of his army. But the army, there was no army left in Jerusalem. He had already wiped it out. He stopped by Jerusalem, took the new king of Judah, which was Josiah's son, Jehoiahaz, to be captive with him to Egypt, set up in, uh, his uncle in place, in his place as a king, Eliakim, on the throne of Israel, essentially saying, from now on, Eliakim, you do as I tell you, or I will take you captive as well. And effectively, Egypt was ruling Judah from that point forward until the Chaldeans made their way to Jerusalem to besiege it. When this Pharaoh deposed King Jehoiahaz from the throne, the nation of Judah as a free nation ceased to exist. There was not another legitimate heir to King David's throne ruling in Jerusalem from this point on until 630 years later when a man named Jesus rode a donkey into the gates of Jerusalem. This was the end of the Davidic line for 630 years. God's judgment was beginning to fall already, historically. Everything that the Lord is telling Habakkuk now that is going to happen down the road in Habakkuk's lifetime certainly came to pass. This prophecy to Habakkuk about the rise of the Chaldeans began the series of events orchestrated by God himself to bring judgment upon Judah, to bring judgment upon Assyria for their, for their wickedness and unfaithfulness uh, that God had made with, uh, uh, and, and for the covenantal unfaithfulness of his own people. What is more is now that they had no army and most of their gold and silver had been taken by Pharaoh back to Egypt as well, with a puppet king in place, Judah, God's chosen people, were sitting ducks when the Chaldeans finished off the Assyrians and began to make their way south, stopping at every city along the way, plundering, murdering, and utterly destroying any who opposed them. And not many did, because they were terrified. And because the Chaldeans at this point were known to be very powerful, and they were known to be very ruthless. When they arrived at Jerusalem, the puppet king wisely surrendered to them and became a puppet king of the Babylonians instead of of Egypt, because that was who he needed to be afraid of right then. And he began paying the Babylonians a heavy annual tribute or tax in order to maintain peace with them and not be destroyed. Two years later, this puppet king shows how wise he was. He decided that he did not like paying so much to Nebuchadnezzar anymore, so he stopped the payments. And Babylon noticed. They came and placed Jerusalem under siege. I don't know if you thought much about what a siege is in those ancient days, but they were terrible. In those days where they, they, the siege in those days was where the invading army would surround the city and cut off all food supplies coming into the city and just wait for starvation to do most of their fighting for them. It was terrible to undergo a siege. Why would God do such a terrible thing to his own chosen people? To allow his own city where his temple is, his own people, his capital, to be placed under a siege where atrocities took place? A God of mercy, a God of grace would do this? 
Why would he not only allow Israel's enemies to defeat them, but here God is raising up an enemy himself who is ruthless and wicked and destroys people in terrible ways? Why would God do this to his own people? The simple answer to that question is that God is faithful to his own word. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Part of the covenant that God made with his people under the leadership of Moses soon after leaving Egypt. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 1. This is part of God's covenant. He says to his people, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your room, the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be yada yada yada. All these blessings will come upon you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then we get down to verse 15. But it shall come to pass that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And there are several large sections of curses. If you look down at beginning in verse 47, beginning in verse 47, I believe explains exactly what happened to Jerusalem not long after God made this prophecy to Habakkuk. Verse 47 in Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. Did the Lord do that? The Lord raised them up and sent them in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. That was meant, the eagle was mentioned in Habakkuk, right? A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your, of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall also not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns, until your high and fortified walls, in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land. God, is, this is Deuteronomy. This is when they're in the wilderness. They don't have high fortified walls yet. <laughs> But this is the covenant God made with them. You will have high, beautiful, fortified walls. But this will happen to you when you disobey. And they shall besiege you in your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is most tender and refined among you 
will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. All these horrors which we read about in the curse section of God's covenant back in Deuteronomy, these things took place when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians came and put Jerusalem under siege. Do you think that God's prophet Habakkuk was familiar with the book of Deuteronomy? Do you think he understood the language that the Lord was saying to him when he replied to his cry? He prayed to the Lord, hoping God would intervene and stop the violence and the godlessness in Judah, hoping that God would do this by means of some sort of revival or some kind of slap on the wrist to wake the people up. But instead, this was God's answer to him. The storm was coming. And this was no random chain of events. This was a storm of judgment and covenantal curses orchestrated by God's sovereign design, which he had told Moses about four four or five thousand years earlier. God ordained judgment upon Assyria for her wickedness and also upon Judah, his chosen people for her rebellion and for forsaking the covenants. And they could not say to God, you didn't warn us. It's written in the covenant recorded in Deuteronomy. The Babylonians were not acting outside of the will of God when they came and committed these atrocities, were they? God raised them up. They came and they did terrible, horrible things, but God raised them up for this purpose. It's, it, how do we wrestle with God's sovereignty when we think about that? The Babylonians were not acting outside of his will. The Babylonians were God's tool being wielded in his own hand. He, they were his instrument of justice and he wielded them in order to bring judgment upon the wickedness of his people. Wrestling with that dilemma, how could God use a tool like the, the Babylonians who were far, far more wicked than the people in Judah in order to execute judgment on Judah? How can that be? Well, that's, that's Habakkuk's next cry. It's not the subject of our sermon this morning, but Habakkuk wrestles with that. But what do we know about the Chaldeans from our passage this morning in Habakkuk 1? 
Well, it's because we are able to look back and see how God's word to Habakkuk came to pass, which I kind of recited for you already. We know more than Habakkuk did at that particular time. In the text, God provides Habakkuk with a number of descriptions, uh, each of which would have sounded dreadful to Habakkuk. Some of them would have reminded Habakkuk of uh, the, the passage in Deuteronomy that we just read. And as God was describing them, I'm sure that the prophet's heart just sunk deeper and deeper in awe and a whole host of other emotions. Looking at just a few of those descriptions, God says that they were both terrible and dreadful, describing this attribute further by saying in verse 7 that, that their justice and dignity come not from following some god or gods, or not from some prescribed code of honor from their homeland, but from themselves. They were a law unto themselves. They did as they pleased. Categories like sin and evil do not exist to people like the Chaldeans. They did what they wanted. When only a single depraved man is permitted by God to go and do as he pleases, unrestrained by God's hand of common grace, that man will do things like walk into an elementary school and kill 26 5 to 10 year olds like we saw happen on the news a few years ago. That's when one man becomes totally depraved and God takes his hand of restraint off him. The Chaldeans were a nation and a mighty army of men doing what was right in their own eyes. And I believe that God uh, raised up Nebuchadnezzar and his father Nebuchadnezzar in order to accomplish these things. And the words terrible and dreadful barely seem to convey the full force of what awaited Judah. Think about it. Habakkuk complained that the people of Judah were perverting justice. And God essentially throws that complaint back in his face saying, if you think Judah is perverting just justice, wait until you meet the Chaldeans. Habakkuk complained that there was violence everywhere. Right? I see violence before me and you will not save. And God replies in verse 9, all of the Chaldeans are coming and they are coming for the explicit purpose of violence. And this type of violence is far worse. Exponentially worse than the violence that the Israelites were themselves guilty of. The consequence of sin is going to be far, far greater than what you think it should be. God compares this army to leopards, to wolves, and to evil eagles, all animals which are renowned for their speed and aggression when pursuing their prey. And we know from history that the speed at which this particular army moved under Nebuchadnezzar uh, terrified the world. They had constructed a cavalry that was uh, more technologically advanced at that particular time. And it terrified the world, giving them an enormous strategic advantage. God says they will gather captives like sand. And here it seems like God's language is a deliberate echo of his original promise to Abraham all those years ago that he would multiply his descendants who could not be numbered like the sands of the sea. Now, 3,000 years later, God is speaking to Abraham's descendants. And he's telling them that they will be possessed as captives like the sands of the sea. The majority of the people from the northern kingdom of Israel had already been carried off captive over 100 years ago when Assyria first came sweeping through the land, setting up their empire. And now the same thing was about to happen to the southern kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians whose empire included the whole of the Assyrian Empire, as well as 
Babylonia, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt when all was said and done. God's final description of these people to the prophet was that they possessed sheer arrogance. They feared no king. They feared no ruler. And they feared no fortress. Many well-fortified cities which were impregnable to any army for generations up until this point fell before them like sandcastles at high tide. They simply gathered slaves that belonged to the people that lived inside these cities and they forced them to build up mounds of earth as high as the walls of the cities, which took months and months to do. And half the people inside the cities were starved to death already when that mound was done. And then the army just walked up the mound and took it, what was left. And anyone who had been strong enough to survive uh, the starvation they would become slaves of the Babylonians and they would do with them whatever they pleased. And they perfected this tactic with cold precision. Then in verse 11, God mentions that, that they commit transgression and offense and ascribe all their power to his God or as it could be translated, they ascribe their own power to be their God. They worshipped themselves. They worshipped their own strength, thinking it made them godlike. Ruthless arrogance such as they possessed was a form of self-deification. All of this God told the prophet in response to Habakkuk's complaint. He complained there was no justice. Well, the Chaldeans are going to show you what no justice looks like. He complained there was violence, and again, Whatever violence was plaguing the streets of Judah at that time were paled in comparison to the violence that awaited them. He complained that the wicked surround the righteous while the Chaldeans were less righteous even than the most wicked in Judah at that time and far less godly. And they would literally surround not only the righteous but the entire city like a flood or a hurricane. God's response to Judah for her sin was to force her to feel the full force of their own sins being committed against them on a grander scale. So what is the point of this sermon? Is it to tell you how swift and powerful and terrible the Chaldeans were under the leadership of General Nebuchadnezzar? No. It is about how swift and how powerful and how utterly terrible is the just righteous judgment of God is on peoples and nations when they do not honor him. We praise God for his justice, right? But would you ever like to taste it? When people stop fearing the Lord He allows them to pursue their sin for a time. He allows them to grow in wickedness for a time. But then he puts the fear of the Lord back in them. This was the fastest, strongest, most ruthless army in the world at that time. But they were nothing but small villages and urban communities who couldn't get along with one another just a few years back before the Lord God said, I'm going to take those people 
and overthrow Assyria. No one would have believed it if it had been told. This was a fearsome army. They did whatever they pleased, and whatever they pleased was to do exactly what the Lord God Almighty had been pleased to ordain them to do. You've probably all heard that expression, guns don't kill people, people kill people with guns. Well, how about a new expression that that ruthless armies don't destroy nations? God destroys nations with ruthless armies. And he doesn't simply use the wicked to do his will. He equips them and he raises them up in order to do his will. Now, this is not a sermon about the awesome and terrible Chaldeans who set up a puppet king in Israel. It's a sermon about the awesome and terrible God of heaven and earth who used the Chaldeans as his puppet here on earth. The most powerful armies and nations in the world are indeed puppets in the hand of God as he, in his providence, causes his will on earth to be accomplished. Our God is an awesome God who reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and might. We've all heard that song. But I hope you realize that as Habakkuk began to realize the truth of this line, what's contained in that phrase, it did not make him want to sit around a campfire and sing it while eating marshmallows. These words are words which, when understood, provoke men to fear the Lord our God, whose terrible justice is something no one ever wants to come near. The sovereignty of God should not make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Especially when we live today in a nation filled with violence that lacks justice and is proud and, and in, in a state of complete rebellion against God who has the power to create as well as to destroy. We don't only commit gross sin in our nation, we have pride parades about it. We're so proud of it. When I read the first four verses of Habakkuk, I find myself asking, what was Habakkuk describing Judah 2,700 years ago or the United States today? And if God is sovereign, he could do the same thing to the United States that he did to Judah. All throughout biblical history, when a nation turns its back on God, he removes his hand of restraint, allows them to plummet into the depths of their own depravity before bringing down his judgment upon them. And in fact, when he removes his hand of restraint, this is God's first act of judgment upon nations. Giving them over to their own sinfulness. This is not simply the way God operates in biblical history. It's the way God operates in all of history. Why did Rome fall? You could, and you could go down a list of all kinds of... We, we could do like a whole college-level history course here. And look at how the sovereignty of God actually operates. This same pattern is followed over and over again. This is a sermon about the sovereignty of God. And my guess is that most of us sitting here today would define the sovereignty of God the way that our confessions of faith and our systematic theology books describe it. But have you ever asked yourself the question, why why 
God did not choose to reveal himself to the world by giving us a systematic theology textbook for us to read explaining who he is. He did not hand us a confession of faith saying, if you want to understand my sovereignty, uh, look it up in this chapter and in this paragraph. He didn't do that, did he? That's not how God chose to reveal himself. It's because he is not a God that we are supposed to merely study about in the library. Not that there's, I'm not saying there's no value to that. He is not merely that being which no greater being can be conceived. How cold. How mathematical, right? I'm not saying it's wrong. But our God is a personal, relational God who interacts with us in our day-to-day lives. And he does not reveal his sovereignty in philosophical formulas, but in real human history. Don't simply study God, know God. As believers and as a church, we know that our God, indeed, our God is an awesome God who reigns in heaven above with wisdom, power, and might. And because of that, our nation as it stands today ought to fear and tremble before him. Because I fear we may soon taste some of his justice and what a terrible thing that would be. But as his bride, we also have tasted of his goodness and of his mercy and of his grace. And what a privilege it is to have tasted that and to know that we will enjoy that taste forevermore. We can praise him for that. When world events don't go the way we would like, what should we as Christians do? How should we respond? Should we look for who is to blame, point our fingers at so-and-so? We blame certain politicians that we disagree with for this or that. Should we blame everyone from the other political party? Should we blame him or them or this country or that country? Or should we look to God instead and know and trust that nothing comes to pass apart from God willing it to come to pass? It's so easy to become consumed by focusing on current events, kind of navel-gazing. But let us be consumed instead with knowing the God who orchestrates all current events, past and future ones as well. When the current events of this passing world seem to be spiraling out of control, maybe God is trying to get our attention. Because He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is an awesome God. He is a sovereign God. He does raise up armies and cause suffering and judgment to fall on those who turn their back on him. But he is also a God of mercy and grace. We can praise him for that. And in both his his terrible justice and his beautiful grace, in both of these things, we know that God is glorified. And that is where our comfort lies. That is where our comfort lies. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. Maybe we should listen. Let's bow with him in prayer. Or bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you again this morning. We know you are a sovereign God. 
Help us to appreciate that sovereignty the way that we ought. Help us realize that if you would bring such terrible justice upon your own chosen people, that you indeed would do the same to us today if we were to turn our backs on you. Father, help us to realize the importance of honoring you and serving you. And help us to be so grateful that we have been enabled to honor and serve and obey you by the grace you have shown to us in a way that we were unable to before. And help us to not dismiss that beautiful knowledge. Father, we ask that you be glorified in all that you do, knowing that you indeed will. But we also ask that you would help us to glorify you in all that you do. Even in things that you choose to do, we might not particularly like. Father, may you be glorified in all the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.